Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you be with us during this time, that you help me to speak your words, that you help us to listen, and that you would change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 6 was written by David, probably when he was king of Israel. In this psalm, David laments his deep distress to God. Now, the nature of his sorrow is not clear. It might have been uh, physical things like sickness, it could have been depression, or just the relentless attacks of his enemies. It's probably an interconnected uh, thing, because... Often the external, physical, mental, spiritual problems in life just compound each other. Our bodies and our souls are are intertwined. These things are not easily separated. Now the Psalms of Lament, including Psalm 6, have many pointed lessons for us on how we can properly navigate the darkest times in our lives. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, there's a right attitude of the heart and a right way to plead with God. Now, you may be going through such a time right now, and so this psalm is very relevant for you. Or or you may not be going through a time like this, but you will. Because the Christian life is a struggle, and you need to be prepared to withstand those times of heartache. So either way, this psalm is relevant to you. I'll be referring to Psalm 6 quite regularly as I speak, so uh, please keep it open. But I'll also be jumping to other Bible passages. It's very helpful to follow along and read those passages if you can. Uh, Some of the other passages I'll just uh, read out, written from from my sheet here. But yeah, do keep Psalm 6 open. Let me read the first two verses again. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Note the words rebuke and discipline. Now, David's not asking God, don't rebuke me, don't discipline me, but he's asking that the punishment be merciful. He's asking that God does not execute true justice in anger. Now, we all go through difficult times. This can include sickness, depression, feeling betrayed and attacked. You feel hopeless. God can seem very far away and your prayers are not heard. But when you go through difficult times, do you think that God might be disciplining you? It's not something we talk about very much, the discipline of God. You may not even think that God does that. How can there be discipline? The price of our sins has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. I'm not talking about the internal punishment that's uh, paid for by Jesus for your sins when he redeemed you. I'm talking about the correction of a loving heavenly father that's putting a disobedient child back onto the right path. You and I are that disobedient child. If you could turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'd like to read a bit of a section here from verse 5 to 11. This also shows this is very much a New Testament thing as well. Hebrews 12, 5-11 And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see there, all discipline is painful, including the discipline of God. In fact, especially the discipline of God, because he knows exactly what we need. But it yields that peaceful fruit of righteousness. That passage goes on in verse 14 to say that we should strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's what God's doing when he's disciplining us. He's removing sin. He's bringing righteousness and holiness into our lives. He's creating in us a holiness that's necessary for us to come before him, to come into his presence. So David's just asking that the punishment might be merciful and that God might not uh, execute justice in his anger because the anger and the wrath of God can't be survived by us. God consumes his enemies in his wrath. We can't withstand God's anger. The prophet uh, Nahum says in chapter 1 verses uh, 6 to 8 of Nahum, who can stand before his indignation? Talking about God, of course. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. David knew how devastating the wrath of God is, but also how good God is to those who take refuge in him. David had been the instrument of God's destruction. He'd slain Goliath. He'd gone out into battle against God's enemies many times. David would accept the discipline and the rebuke of a loving father, but he was asking for grace because he can't take it anymore. He's asking for grace and mercy that he doesn't deserve, but he needs it because he wants to survive. I'm languishing, he said, heal me. This distress is all through me, down to my bones, down to the very core of my being. David's whole being, his soul, body, mind, his bones are deeply troubled. He's in great distress. But you, O Lord, how long? How long am I to be in this unbearable agony? How long until you show your mercy? How long will you just leave me alone until you come back to save me, until I can feel your presence again? This is a brutally honest psalm. Verses 6 and 7 are especially open and honest. Back in Psalm 6, verses 6 and 7, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David is thoroughly fatigued from this terrible situation He's emotionally exhausted from his crying. He's in deep depression. 
He is crying every night. He's literally crying himself to sleep if he can get to sleep. His despair is deep and dark. And as I've said, these effects are all intertwined. The physical effects, the depression, the pain of his conscience. It's like a a medley of suffering that can't really be separated into its parts. Verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Deliver my life. David was in fear of his life. And God is the only one who can save him. God's the only one who can put an end to his suffering. It's God alone that David is pleading to for grace, for healing, for mercy. He's pleading to God for his life. But see here that David also gives reasons to the Lord as to why he should be shown mercy. In verse 4 he said, Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now that means more than just save me because you love me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. 300 years earlier, Moses the prophet led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt toward the promised land. The people of Israel complained and rebelled against God continuously. They were stubborn, disobedient, forgetful, ungrateful, arrogant. And on one of these many, many occasions, God had just had enough. And God said to Moses, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And God could do that. He'd made that whole nation out of Jacob. He could wipe them out and make a bigger nation out of Moses. And Moses pleaded with God not to do this, and he provided a reason. Moses the meek actually argued with God. Moses told God that if he wiped out the Israelites, the Egyptians, and all the other countries, they'd come to hear of it and they'd say that, well, God destroyed them because he wasn't capable of bringing his people into the land that he had promised them. Moses reminded God of the promises that he'd made and then God's own description of himself as being slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. And then right at the end of this speech, it's in Numbers 14 verse 19, Moses says this to God, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. See that he says, pardon them according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And so we see David here is applying this Moses argument to himself. He's saying, just like you pardoned the Israelites because of your steadfast love, pardon me now. You made promises to them, but you've actually made promises to me and about my future and my descendants. Your reputation is at stake. And God's made promises to us too. He's promised to never... Uh, leave us without a way of escape out of every temptation he's promised as we read in hebrews to discipline us with love as a father he's promised to work all things together for good for those who love him and so when you are overwhelmed with life plead with god in prayer but remind him of his promises but the greatest reason that i think that david gives to god to save him is in verse 5 In death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? If I live, he says, I'll remember what you've done. I will praise you. I'll tell people about how you rescued me. 
if I'm dead, I can't do that. I can't praise you in, in the coffin. I can't sing psalms to you from the grave. I want to live. I want to praise you, Lord. Save me so that I can praise and glorify you. And so what about us? We really need to cultivate in ourselves a, an attitude like this in our hearts that, that we can be people that genuinely want, to be, genuinely want to be saved from our troubles so that at the end of it we can praise God. We can tell people what God has done for us in our lives. Tell of his provision, his deliverance. From verse 8, there's a very sudden transition though from this dark depression we've seen in these first seven verses. From verse 8, there's a shout of defiant victory. I'll read it again. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled and shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. David's in a very different place now, spiritually and mentally. The um, victory is now certain. David has got an assurance that God has heard his prayer, that his sins are forgiven, that the punishment is over. The fog of depression has been lifted by God and it's been replaced by a regal confidence of God's anointed one. David commands the workers of evil to depart. The evildoers have been circling him like a pack of dogs, ready to come in for the kill. And now now he's sending the dogs scampering because the Lord has heard the voice of David's weeping. The Lord has heard his pleas and his prayers and the Lord has accepted them. And then David celebrates the downfall of his enemies. They'll be ashamed. Like David was troubled, they'll be troubled. They'll turn and run in shame. There'll be no one to save them. This delight that David has in the downfall of his enemies is something that we need to look at a little differently when we apply this passage to our lives. We need to look at the Psalms through the perspective that we have from the greater David, the true King of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus very famously said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, As we look back at Psalm 6 through the lens of love your enemies, I don't think that actually puts us at any disadvantage. Loving our enemies has a stronger and more immediate impact than praying for God to smite them. When we love our enemies, their ability to affect our hearts and souls and mind is actually gone. They can't hurt us. Uh, Romans 12 also talks about the effect of loving our enemies. I'd like to turn there and read a few verses. If you want to go to Romans 12... Romans 12, verses 20 to 21. Shall I go from verse 19? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
When we love our enemies, evil is overcome, and it's overcome by good. Now the evildoer may repent and turn to Jesus and become your brother or sister in Christ. That would be the greatest victory in that situation. Or they may turn and run in shame. But our hearts must genuinely be for the good of those who hate us as we pray for them and even provide for them. Let's look at a few more ways of how Psalm 6 relates to Jesus because Jesus was the son of David. David was an imperfect model of the future son of David. The true anointed king, the Messiah, was to be a descendant of King David and to reign on his throne forever. Now many of the Psalms of David are very detailed prophecies of what would happen to Jesus in his death and his life and his resurrection, but not Psalm 6. But it does show us a few things. In verse 3, David says, My soul is greatly troubled. Uh, In John 12, verse 27, when Jesus knew that his hour of suffering had come, he said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Just like David, Jesus was troubled to his bones because he he knew what he was about to suffer. Jesus suffered so much more than David. Jesus was going to be sweating blood soon after this. But while David prayed for God to save him, Jesus did the opposite. He he wouldn't ask, Father, save me from this hour. This was the reason why he'd come. This was the reason he'd lived his whole life up to this hour. David pleaded with God for the Lord not to discipline him in his wrath, even though he deserved it. The exact opposite applied to Jesus. He didn't deserve any punishment or discipline, and yet he received the punishment of God for the sins of countless men and women. This punishment was the greatest display of God's wrath that's ever existed. Uh, Isaiah the prophet uh, predicted this and foresaw this when he said in Isaiah 53, 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In Psalm 6, verse 4, David asked God to save him, remember, for the sake of your steadfast love, reminding God of his love and his promises. But Jesus knew he was coming to suffer and die because of God's steadfast love and to fulfill God's promises. What about the relationship of Jesus to his enemies? In one sense, everyone is God's enemy. We're all sinful humanity. We're natural enemies of God. When Jesus died for our sins, he died for his enemies. In Romans 5 verse 10 it says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. While we were enemies we were reconciled to God. So we who are saved are no longer God's enemies. That's what reconciled means. We aren't enemies of God, but we're sons and daughters. But what about those who have not been reconciled? What's to become of those enemies of God? Has the Old Testament God of Nahum softened over the centuries? Because Jesus said, love your enemies. How, what will he do about that? I'd like to turn to Matthew 7 now. When Jesus said, love your enemies, that was in Matthew 5 at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the same sermon toward the end. Jesus said, not everyone 
who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Note that particular phrase that Jesus uses, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's virtually a direct quote from King David, depart from me, you workers of evil. Now, these words of Jesus on the last day are not intended to make us not care about the people that are the enemies of God. It's quite the opposite. Jesus told us to love our enemies. We're to make disciples of the enemies of Jesus because true disciples are reconciled to God. If we love our enemies, we don't want to hear Jesus say those dreadful words to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So just think back to the first few verses of this psalm. The intense pain that David was suffering, remember, was the discipline of God. It was the result of his own sin. And often God's chastisement includes just the natural consequences of sin. If you embezzle money, you'll lose your job and you'll go to prison. If you have an affair and commit adultery, your marriage will be damaged, if not ruined. Your relationships with your children will be ruined. Your children will suffer. I want to make a couple of very quick points of encouragement as I close to help us avoid these periods of sin that often result in God's discipline. The old-fashioned term for this period of sin is called backsliding. Now, it's, it's old-fashioned because as a church, we've gotten out of the habit of talking about this, out of talking about backsliding. So I've got five quick points here. Number one, do not love the world. That's from 1 John 2 that we read this morning. Be in the world shining like a light, but don't be of the world. Number two, control your desires. We are tempted when we're enticed and lured away by our own sinful desires. So control them, and then with God's help, kill them. Three, resist the devil. Don't underestimate temptations. Don't toy with sin. Don't rationalize sin. Four, pray. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, Number five, be in fellowship. The last passage I want to look at briefly is Hebrews chapter 10. From verse uh, 24. Oh, there it is. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You should be stirred up to love and good works as you meet together at least once a week here in church. You should be doing the same for your brothers and sisters, being an encouragement to them in their lives. This is one of the basic means of grace, one of the simplest tools that the Holy Spirit uses in our lives. And finally, in the darkest of times, plead with God like David in Psalm 6. Use this psalm as a model when you pray. Memorize this psalm. You can recite it when you're crying and soaking your own pillow with tears and you feel helpless and alone. Because you can be encouraged in those times that you have the victory in Christ. Your Heavenly Father will not forget you. And you can be assured that the Holy Spirit will use those momentary afflictions to prepare you for eternity with God. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for your word and these psalms. Lord, many of them are so sorrowful in the pain that they describe, but we thank you for the, the joy of victory that we see in them as well. Father, help us to, to learn from the, these models that we have and that you might help us in the difficult times of life and especially when you might be using those times to uh, remove sin from our lives and to make us more like the Lord Jesus. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.